Hey, uh, if you got a Bible, Nehemiah chapter 7 is where we are today. We're working our way through the Old Testament obscure book of Nehemiah. Before we do that, let me just kind of tell you a couple things. Um, in a couple weeks, um, we are uh, going to, uh, well, let me, let me not do that. We're gonna, I'll, we'll surprise you on that. But I want to let you know that um, next Sunday, I will not be here. Um, Jennifer, it, we are celebrating the 10th anniversary of Jennifer's 30th birthday. And, um, and, um, it's a, uh, it's a surprise, so don't tell her. All she knows is that we are going somewhere, but, um, we're getting on a plane on Friday morning in Atlanta, and we'll be back Monday night, dis- uh, location undisclosed, and, um, I'm gonna roll it out for my lady. So, um, uh, but, um, in my stead, uh, Don McKelvey, who we affectionately call Donnie Mac, is, where's Donnie Mac? Is he around here? I think he might be. Donnie Mac's going to be preaching next Sunday, and so uh, come lean forward. In. That'll be a break out of Nehemiah. Don's going to share a word out of the scriptures, and then we'll be back um, in Nehemiah the following week. Now, I need your help. Um, we made this commitment. We're like hardcore Bible people here. We believe very passionately in the scriptures. We, uh, we like to do a lot of the times is preach through books of the Bible. Not all the time, but that's what we do a lot of the time. And, um, even when we're not preaching through books of the Bible, we like to be biblical. We don't just, it's not like Brad's thoughts and just come up with, you know, my seven thoughts on how to have a better Tuesday. We want to preach biblically here. And so we're working our way through the Old Testament book of Nehemiah. And that's awesome. But with it comes some challenges, because um, if you're not aware, if you've never read the book of Nehemiah, especially in the Old Testament, sometimes you come across long lists of names. And um, we did that a couple of weeks ago when we preached on Nehemiah chapter 3. It's about 58 Hebrew names. And here we are again, boys and girls. We're in Nehemiah chapter 7, and it's another long list of Hebrew names. And you stayed up late watching a football game, so I got my work cut out for me. Um, the prudent thing to do if you're trying to grow a church and excite people and catch them would be to skip this chapter. But we're not going to do that. All right, here's what we're going to do. Um, we're going to read this chapter. Hey, listen, again, lean forward into this. But God uses ordinary, regular people. There's some cats in this chapter who made it into the book, man. Like, there's a dude up in heaven, and his name is Darkon. And he's like... I'm in the book of Nehemiah, and I'm going to go to heaven someday, and Moses is going to have a little fan club out there, and I'm going to be like, Darkon, seriously, dude? Like, you're in Nehemiah? And he's like, I know, dude. I can't believe it. So we're going to read through these names, and then I'm going to use this as an opportunity to kind of springboard into sort of a a rehashing of our mission and vision here at Crosspoint. And so if you're here for the first time, this will be good for you because this will be um, uh, a little introduction into what makes our heart beat. And if you've been here for a while, um, you need to hear this. Uh, you need to hear this uh, over and over again because we're a young church that, uh, that has a lot of challenges ahead of us. And, and we can mess things up pretty easily. And so I'm going to talk about three questions today that apply to every individual believer and apply to every group of people. And there are three questions that drive the mission and the vision and the reason for being of Crosspoint. So we're going to lean into that. But first, we're going to read some names. And here's my strategy. I figure if I read fast and confidently, you won't know whether I'm mispronouncing the names or not. All right, let's go. This is going to be awesome. 
All right. In Nehemiah chapter 7, now to catch you up, remember, um, and if you want to catch up in Nehemiah or you missed any messages, we have all of them on the website. We've got CDs out in the foyer of the last few. You can go on our website. We have an iTunes podcast with notes and everything on the website to catch up. But where we are basically in Nehemiah is the Old Testament story, really the storyline of the scriptures. And through the Old Testament is, is that God has been calling out and forming a people, whether it be the Old Testament Jews or whether it be New Testament Christians, God has always desired to reconcile the world to himself through a people by the work of his son on the cross. And so in the Old Testament, we see how God creates everything and that creation willfully rebels against God. And with that rebellion, that sin that all of us are part of, not just Adam and Eve, but all of us are part of, we've all rebelled against God. And that has brought with it a certain amount of consequences. It it doesn't mean that we're just sort of we're, we're neutralized or we need a little help. It means that we are spiritually dead. The consequences of sin against the creator of the universe is spiritual death. So we're all spiritual dead. We need to be brought back to life. And, and God does that. He offers life through his son, Jesus. And so he comes and he's reconciling. He's gathering a people. In fact, the whole storyline of the scriptures is God reconciling the world back to himself through Jesus Christ. And the story of the Old Testament is how he is gathering a people through whom the Savior would come. And his desire has always been that through whether it's the Old Testament people of Israel or whether it's the New Testament Christian church that he's working through a people, not just so those people can be frozen chosen, but so that through those people he would bless all the peoples of the earth. And so he begins to do this in the Old Testament and he forms this people and he tells them to establish this city and to establish this temple. And they do that. But of course, they rebel and this city and this temple get destroyed. And then he raises up this leader named Nehemiah who rebuilds the city with the help of some others who rebuild the temple. And so God's church, think of the nation of Israel, kind of like God's Old Testament church, are being rebuilt so that through them God could make his name great and he can work in all the nations of the earth. Does God have to do that? Of course not. God can do whatever he wants. In fact, we use this word God is sovereign, sovereignty a lot here. And that means that God can do whatever he wants, however he wants, whenever he wants, with whoever he wants, whyever he wants, whenever. I'm repeating myself, but throw in whatever little adverb. I don't even know if that's the correct word, but throw in a whatever, however, whenever, whyever, whoever, and that God can do it. He's sovereign. But God has chosen to work through his people. And so he now raises up this man named Nehemiah. And Nehemiah has gone back to rebuild this city. And so the parallel for us is that God is working through us as a New Testament group of people to rebuild or build our lives and our church so that it is something that God can work through. So Nehemiah has gone back. He's gathered a bunch of people. They've faced opposition from the outside. There's a couple guys that seem to be plaguing Nehemiah all the time, Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem. They're like the three amigos, the three musketeers that constantly harass Nehemiah. He refutes them, and then he had to work on internal strife. And finally, they get the wall built in 52 days, and the city is coming back together, and the people are starting to live in it again. And that's where we are in Nehemiah chapter 7. All right, let's go. Now, verse 1, now when the wall had been built and I had set up the doors and the gatekeepers, the singers and the Levites had been appointed, I gave my brother Hanani and Hananiah, the governor of the castle, charge over Jerusalem, for he was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. There's about 50,000 people living in this city and up to this point, Nehemiah has kind of been the guy doing it all. And once they get stuff established, 
he begins to delegate responsibility and authority. And one of them is to his brother Hananiah and this other guy named uh, his brother Hananiah and another guy named Hananiah. Verse three. And I said to them, let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot. And while they are still standing guard, let them shut and bar the doors, appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some at their guard post and some in the front of their homes. Verse four. The city was wide and large. But the people within it were few, and no houses had been rebuilt. Okay, before we get into verse 5 and we start plowing through a bunch of names, let me stop here and just let you know kind of how we think about leadership here at Crosspoint and what we're moving towards. Now, all of us come from various different sort of church structures, and it's important for you to know this. This is not the most exciting point in the world. This isn't going to help you like necessarily fight sin on, on a Tuesday night, but it's important that you know this about how we're structuring Crosspoint. In the Old Testament and in the New Testament, we see three biblical roles, and you can put that screen up there, three leadership roles that are fulfilled in Christ, the prophet, the priest, and the king. And all throughout the scriptures, whether it's Old Testament or New Testament, we see the leaders of God's people kind of being one of these types of roles, or, or sometimes you'll hear the word offices. There's, there's prophets that God raises up. There are people like Elijah and, and Ezekiel and John the Baptist and, and Paul. They're men that bring God's word. They're teachers, preachers. They, they have this, they have this kind of like this fire in them in their belly where they just want to teach. They want to preach. They want to exhort. And, and Jesus, of course, is, is the, absolute fulfillment of that then there's priests there's men like like moses and aaron that come and they and they are go-betweens between god and the people and they they meet with people they they help to to make the prophet's voice understandable to the people and so think of kind of like in our context they're guys that they're people that counsel and can 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 work with people after you know, a message and begin to help them think about where the word of God fits into their life. That's the priest. And then uh, we have the king, the, the Old Testament king and the New Testament leader, men like David in the um, Old Testament and men like James in the New Testament, who are the administrative leaders of God's people. They're the guys that can administrate and think about kind of like a, a pastor or elder that is really good at kind of nuts and bolts and money and administration and, and, and kind of overseeing things. Those are the administrators. And Jesus comes and he fulfills all of these roles perfectly in one, but also as he inspires people to lead his church Everybody kind of has a strength and fits into one of these things. And, and so I want you to know that as we build the leadership of Crosspoint, we're looking and we're trying to build ourselves kind of with this tri-level view of leadership. And kind of generally how it works a lot of time in, in a lot of churches is that there's sort of this expectation that the one guy who is the senior pastor... And by the way, we don't really have a senior pastor in the flesh here at Crosspoint. Jesus is the senior pastor. He's the chief shepherd and overseer of our souls, First Peter says. And so please don't say, Brad, the senior pastor. I'm just one of the elders here. I have the main responsibility of preaching and teaching and leading the church visionally. But I'm just one of the guys as we grow that's helping us. And so, um, but what we generally have in the American church is there's this expectation that there's one guy who kind of does all of these things. And that can be death for a church because don't we kind of have this expectation? He's the senior pastor. He's kind of the authoritative, distant 
figure who sort of knows everything about the Bible. He's got all the answers. He's got like a staff that sort of are his little guys that do stuff. And then there's maybe this strange thing called the deacon board over there. And they're sort of always mad about something. And then we got the rest of the people. And so we lead this way. And, and the, the, the senior pastor, he's got the parking space, you know, pastor painted on the curb. He's distant. He's all wise. He's kind of like the Protestant version of a pope, except without the dress and the cane and the hat. And he's just kind of distant. And he's the guy, man. He's the guy. He's the guy that has to preach every sermon. He's the guy that has to counsel everybody that needs help. And he's the guy that has to know about money and invest and make all the good decisions about where the church should be and buildings and property. He's the guy, right? I'm not that guy. (laughs) I'm not that guy. Like there are dudes that are way more talented that can do that, but I'm not that guy. Because here's what happens is an unhealthy amount of authority and importance gets placed on one guy. And one guy, if he's very, very talented and has a very, very good heart, he can maybe do that well for 30 years. But then eventually that cat dies and somebody else tries to come in and fill him and it does not work. It doesn't work. And so we're trying to spread the leadership responsibility here. Every leader, to some degree, will have aspects of all three of these. I think should have aspects of all three of these. But also every uh, church leader has probably some strengths. Look, you guys need to know what my rank is here, my order, kind of how I'm gifted. Uh, my, my primary gift is as a prophet, preacher, teacher. I'm not talking about foretelling. I mean, I'm not talking about foretelling the future. I'm talking about preaching, teaching, exhorting, bringing fastballs out of the book. That's what I do. That's my primary gift. I love to counsel with people. That's probably my secondary gift. It's not my number one thing. I love to counsel with people. I, am, I, I do some of the administration, but I'm not, I'm not good. I'm not a good king. I'm not a good administrator. And God has, through his gracious providence, given us a man, an elder at this church, who is our other elder, uh, Reynolds Counts, who is his main gift set is as a king, is an administrator. I don't go around calling him King Reynolds. I mean, <laughs> But you know what I'm talking about. He's, he's a great leader. He's an administrator. And so, so we're trying to move away from the, the kind of the assumption that one man kind of has all the answers. Look, I, I am the primary preacher teacher here. That will be my role throughout the history of my time at Crosspoint, which I hope is forever. I hope I die in the middle of my last sermon in my 80s as I spontaneously combust somewhere, wherever we are at that time. That's what I want to do. But, um, and, and so we come and God gives us men who are good kings that can administrate things. And, and although I love to counsel, although I love to meet with people on a one-on-one basis, as the church grows, we, it, it's, it's simply not the most strategic thing for me to do to be the only guy that has the juice card or has the good advice. It's not good for me and it's not good for you. And so as we grow, you need to realize that most of my effort will be spent in the preaching and teaching. We need... We need folks that would come on our staff that are great at like, kind of pastoral counsel. And I'm not saying that if I meet with you that, that it's a bother to me. I love it. But I know that as we grow, the most strategic thing for me to do is to spend most of my time in the, in the preaching, teaching role to let, like, I'm not the guy you call if you need some administrative thing. I mean, it's just, we, we've got to grow in that area and God will help us in that. But I need you to know that that's the way we're thinking about leadership. When we started this church, I mean, I, it was us and just a few folks. And I, I mean, I was folding the bulletins, setting up the nursery, um, I, I, doing everything. I was, I was the, I was the preacher, counselor, administrator. And, and, and for those of you that have been with us, this is really important. For those of you that have been with us from the beginning, I love you dearly. 
But as we grow, you need to realize that I'm, I need to grow into more specialized areas of ministry. And, and that may feel to you like I'm not as close to you as I once was. And that's not me getting like big time or anything like that. I would rather stick a fork in my eye and pluck my teeth with a rusty set of pliers than be the unapproachable pastor. Really. That's a terrible analogy, wasn't it? I would, I would, I would rather, I, I'm serious, I would, rather, I would rather have my toenails pulled by, by a vice grip and have alcohol poured over it. That's how, no, that's how I feel. Listen, then be the egotistical, distant, pompous, condescending, angry preacher, dude. But if, if as we grow, look, we started out this church with 30 folks. And we've got 250 people probably here now and probably 300, 350 may call Cross Point home. And if I'm the only guy, everybody knows my cell phone number. It blows up. It blows up. And I'm not telling you that to say don't call me. But I, listen, look, this is, guys, this is, a, this is a passion of my heart, man. Like, I want to give my life to this church, but Jennifer and I cannot keep going the way we're going. We will blow up. We will blow up. I don't want to be the guy. You ever seen Ferris Bueller's Day Off? You did, all of you. Your kids of the 80s. I know you all said. Remember when he's, remember the car? His dad had that car. And, re, and remember that he's, he's, Ferris is kicking the side of the car and he was saying it was always about the car. It was always about the car. Look, I don't want my four kids to grow up and kick the side of the church and say it was always about the church. I, I love you guys. I'm going to give my life to you. But I'm not, I, I don't love you more than my marriage and I don't love you more than my children. And so you need to know that, okay? You need to know that. You need to know that if I'm not easy to get a hold of through email, if I'm not easy to get a hold of through the cell phone, it's because my heart is stretched and I, f- I always feel like I'm letting somebody down. I do. And as we grow, you need to give me the grace to spend most of my time preaching and teaching. And you need to listen to Reynolds and other kings that he raises up and let their voice be just as powerful and authoritative as my voice because I'm not the king. I'm the preacher. All right, you still love me? All right, let's go. Okay. <laughs> Remember that time I did that thing with throw the quarter? Dance, monkey, dance. <laughs> All right, let's go. Verse 5. Let's crank it up. Then my God put it into... And I'm not about to blow up. Don't act like... I'm not going anywhere. <laughs> don't, don't, don't get scared. What's the matter with Brad? <laughs> no, I'm just saying we can't do another four years like we've done. And it's only going to get busier, so I've got to get a little bit more specialized. All right. But when I start having a twitch in my neck, then maybe come up and make me take a nap or something. All right. Verse 5. Then God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles and the officials and the people to be enrolled by genealogy. And I found the book of the genealogy of those who came up at the first, and I found written in it. Listen, history is so important. Like, we're, we are standing on somebody's shoulders, man. Look, we, that's why I can't stand, stand young guys that, 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 that start churches, and this is, their, this is their marketing ploy. Church sucks, so come do it with us. I hate that. We are not a reaction against traditional church. We, we love our grandparents' church. We love our mom and dad's church. We love the downtown churches. We love organs. We love stained glass windows. We love dudes and suits we love all that stuff we we just don't choose to do it that way but we love all that stuff let's not be a young group of punks who are mad all right we're not we believe in heritage and tradition and family and the body of christ that has stretched from acts 2 until now all right that's a good right on 
Verse 6, these were the people of the province who came up out of the captivity of those exiles from Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, that he had carried into the exile. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own town. They came with Zerubbabel, Jeshua, Nehemiah, not the Nehemiah that's the leader here, another guy, Azariah, Ramiah, Nehemiah, whatever, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mispareth, Bigva, Nehum, Bani, the number of the men of the people of Israel, the sons of Parash. 2,172. Look, as I read these names, lean forward into it. There's anonymous people out there that make the kingdom go. The sons of Shephatiah, 372. The sons of Ra, 652. The sons of Pahath Moab, namely the sons of Jeshua and Joab, 2,818. The sons of Elam, 1,254. The sons of Zatu, 845. The sons of Zakai, 760. The sons of Benu, 648. The sons of Bebe, Bebe's kids, 628. The sons of Asgad, 2,322. The sons of Adonikam, 667. The sons of Bigva, 2,067. The sons of Adon, 655. The sons of Adder, namely of Hezekiah, 98. The sons of Hashem, 328. The sons of Bezai, 324. The sons of Haraf, 112. The sons of Gibeon, 95. The men of Bethlehem and Netophah, 188. The men of Anathoth, 128. The men of Beth, Asmaveth, 42. The men of Kiriath, Jerim, Chephera and Biroth, 743. The tailgaters, Biroth, 743. The men of Ramah and Geba, 621. The men of Michmas, 122. The men of Bethel and A, 123. The men of the other Nebo, 52. The sons of the other Elam, 1254. The sons of Haram, 320. The sons of Jericho, 345. The sons of Lot, Hadad, and Anno, 721. The sons of Sina. 3,930. The priests, the sons of Jedidiah, namely the house of Jeshua, 973. The sons of Emir, 1,052. The sons of Pashur, 1,247. The sons of Haram, 1,017. The Levites, the sons of Jeshua, namely of Cadmiel, the sons of Hodava, 74. The singers, the sons of Asaph, 148. The gatekeepers, the sons of Shalem, the sons of Atcher, the sons of Talmon, the sons of Akub, the sons of Hattaita, the sons of Shobai, 138. The temple servants, the sons of Ziha, the sons of Hasufa, the sons of Tabalath, the sons of Kiros, the sons of Sia, the sons of Padon, the sons of Lebanon, the sons of Hagaba, the sons of Shalmai, the sons of Hanan, the sons of Gedel, the sons of Gehar, the sons of Ray, the sons of Rezin, the sons of Nekodah, the sons of Gazim, the sons of Uzzah, the sons of Pasia, the sons of Besai, the sons of Meunim, the sons of Nefusheshim, the sons of Bakbuk, the sons of Hakufa, the sons of Harhur, the sons of Basilith, the sons of Mahida, the sons of Harsha, the sons of Barkos, the sons of Sesera, the sons of Tima, the sons of Nazia, the sons of Hatafai, the sons of Solomon's servants, the sons of Sota, the sons of Sophereth, the sons of Perida, the sons of Jala, the sons of the sons of Darkon. <laughs> Evidently there were Star Wars fans back in the Bible days, the sons of Darkon. What a name. The sons of Gedel, the sons of Shephatiah, the sons of Hatil, the sons of Pokareth, Hazabam, the sons of Amon, the temple servants, and the sons of Solomon's servants were 392. The following of those who came up, of Te- came up from Telmalah, Telharsha, Cherub, Adon, and Emer. Listen to this. But they could not prove their father's houses nor their descent, whether they belonged to Israel. What a sad statement. I pray that of all the little boys and girls that wander through the hallways of cross point and as they grow that they would never have to wonder about their spiritual heritage and not be able to prove through their life that they're christians
62, the sons of Deliah, the sons of Tobiah, the sons of Nekodiah, 642, also of the priests, the sons of Hobiah, the sons of Hakaz, the sons of Barzillia, who had taken a wife of the daughters of Barzillia, the, the Gileadite, and was called by their name. These sought their registration among those enrolled in the genealogies, but it was not found there. So they were excluded from the priesthood as unclean. The governor told them that they were not to partake of the most holy food until a priest with Urim and Thummim should arise. And we'll handle the rest later when we talk about money. So there you go. There it is. A whole bunch of names. Nehemiah 7, 1 through 65. All right. Yeah. (laughs) Thank you. All right. Three questions. Three questions that are, uh, I think, will give rise out of this. What we've got here in Nehemiah is we've got all the people that are now living in a city. They now are a church. They're the group of people. They're God's people. We've got, we've got folks here. We've got it set up. We're four years into this gig. We've got a church here. We, we've got a group of people that are kind of identifying themselves by this thing called Crosspoint, a part, a sliver of God's people. And so three questions, I believe, are very important for us as a church and for each of us as individuals. And those are three questions that drive everything we do here. This is our mission, our vision, our reason for being springs out of these three questions. The first question is we have to answer as a church, and I think we do a pretty good job with this one, is is this question of our theology. Who is Jesus? Like, who is Jesus? Jesus. Now that may seem like a, a, a pretty basic question for for some of us, but but we, we need to answer that question correctly and biblically. We live in a very religious but mostly lost culture where Jesus look for most of the people in our area that, that, that have kind of grown up sort of culturally attached to a church, Jesus is He's like, you know that Doobie Brothers song in the 70s, Jesus is just all right with me? That's kind of the sentiment of our culture. In the South, in the Bible Belt, oftentimes we have just enough of Jesus to be inoculated to him. And Jesus is not the Savior, King, Creator, Sovereign One. He is the cultural helper that comes along to give you a better life. And of course he does help and he gives you a better life, but that's, that's not how we view Jesus according to the scriptures. We believe that Jesus is the creator, the savior, and the king. And as a result, he deserves to be worshipped and he deserves to be given, our lives deserve to be given to him because to him be all glory. Let me read you a scripture. It's in Colossians chapter Colossians chapter uh, 1, verses 15, and the next couple verses, this is talking about Jesus. It says that he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him, meaning Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things. Listen to the to the sweeping nature of these verses. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. Like Jesus is holding the fabric of like your cells together. Can you like think about that for a second? If Jesus released that, we, I mean, we would poof, it'd be over. I mean, Jesus is holding the universe together. And we're like, oh, whatever. I mean, you know, go Gators. I mean, come on. I mean, we need to acknowledge the fact that he's the sovereign creator. Verse 18. And he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace 
by the blood of his cross. So that says that Jesus is not only the sovereign king of everything, he's also on a mission, and that mission is to reconcile a lost world to himself. And he does that through people like us. Verse 21. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, don't read into that some pagan in the first century. Read into that you, all of us, were hostile. We do evil deeds. I don't care if you're a good little church kid. You, you, the Bible is clear. And, and the Bible is clear that before we come to Christ, we are spiritually dead. You may be physically alive. You may be emotionally vibrant. But there is a hole in your heart. And it is, it is spiritual death and it, you need to be brought back to life. You do not need improvement. You don't need, you don't need help. Like you need to know this. You don't need help. You don't need to become religious. If you're not a Christian, you need to be saved. You need to be rescued. You need to be born again. You need to be brought back to life by God through the power of Jesus. And if you're a Christian, you need to know that that's what happened to you so that your life would correspond in response to that great event. I mean, we just a little while ago, we sang a song and talked about Jesus rising from the grave. And we're like, and he came up from the grave and defeated death. I mean, seriously? Like, I mean, Jesus, I mean, last night, Jennifer and I are kind of closet. I'm a closet Gator fan. She's a full-on Gator fan because she went to the University of Florida. And we were watching this game last night, and their quarterback, you guys know who he is, Tim Tebow, he got his block knocked off last night. Did you see that? <laughs> yeah, I <right> think. <laughs> and so Tebow gets hit. And he's, he's down, right? And there was this collective gasp in the stadium. Will he get up? And Tebow, i.e. Superman, does, he does get up. And there's this, even amongst the hostile crowd there, there's this thunderous applause. Like Jesus is the king of the universe. And without him, we sang a song about God's wrath. Like, listen. This is, so, this is not how you build a church, man. You don't just talk to people out of the Bible about God's wrath, but that's what we do here. Like, like, I mean this in every bit of grace and mercy. Like, Jesus, God is holy and just. And most of us don't identify ourselves as in need of a Savior. Like, all, like look, I don't care if you've... Like, we tend to think of Hitler, Osama bin Laden, Mussolini. No, no. We're, we're wicked people apart from Jesus, and that wickedness has consequences, and it's, it's the holy and righteous justice of the supreme creator of all things. And if you have not dealt with that, listen, if you have not dealt with that, then the Bible says very clearly, this is not up for debate. Every theologian, everybody that reads their Bible is in agreement on this, that those who do not have their sin atoned for by what Jesus did on the cross through their belief and trust and repentance in Jesus, what's coming down on your head is the justice of God. Don't leave. I don't care if you're a good kid. I don't care if you grew up in First Baptist or Second Methodist or Third Presbyterian or Fourth Assembly of God or Fifth, my dog is bigger than your dog temple. I don't care. Like, have you... 
Have you considered what Jesus did and have you believed in it and have you repented and have you trusted? I'm not saying you're perfect. I'm saying have you done that? The Bible is clear. That's all we care about here. We don't care about anything other than making that known. You must believe in Jesus. He's not your helper. He's not the guy to come to when your marriage is rocky and you start attending church. He's not the place to come to because you're a kid, like you spent some time in teen advisors and young life as a, as a high school kid and then you did your thing in college and just lived like you wanted to and now you're in your 30s and your life's a little rocky and your kid's kind of a punk and so you think, oh no baby, we got to get back in church. Let's get a little bit of cultural Christianity so that our kids aren't jacked up. No, no, that's not, Jesus is not the helper, although he will help you in ways that you cannot imagine. He is the Savior and the King and my fear is, is that we are a church of young people who think they're pretty okay, who have decent jobs, who got stuff and we rely on that stuff and we treat Jesus as a, as, a, as a bobblehead doll and not a savior. He's not to be put on the windshield. He is to be worshipped and adored and your life given to him. You've got to know that, man. You've got to know that. But the lie is that when you do that, there's just some sort of like, it's no fun. But the way Jesus calls us into life is not only for our salvation, but for our great joy. And that's my second question. Number one is, who is Jesus? He's the Savior, King. We need to preach that, teach that. The second question is, how has he called us to live together? How has he called us to, to be a church? This word ecclesiology means, how are we supposed to like, live out this church thing? We need to know each other, man. You can't dart in here, sit on the back row, sneak out before the last song, have nobody know your name, never fill out a sheet, dance from church to church, do your little thing, be critical of this music or that guy's preaching style or whatever. You can't do it, man. You've got to live together with a bunch of jacked up people. Look, if you're new to Crosspoint and you're wondering, you're kind of like, wow, those, I like those folks. We're jacked up man we're j- everybody's normal until you get to know them we got a bunch of kooks in this church and i'm one of them like we're jacked up we're weird we're awkward we'll rub you the wrong way we speak out of turn we just we think of ourselves we're we're jacked up come to cross point okay so so that's how you got to live together with a bunch of other people who are insecure messed up rebellious sinners who are in the process of being renewed by jesus and you gotta, you got to be committed to like doing life together, not just showing up for an hour and a half on Sunday. And then individually, you've got to be committed to making your life reflect God. There's this thing here in, in our culture where it's like if you really give your life to Jesus, it'll all of a sudden be no more fun. Oh so, man, Jesus is, is for our joy, but true joy, true joy. But we put religion on top of it and we say, well, you know, Basically, we've boiled down Christianity in the Bible Belt in the South to, you know, don't go to rated R movies, don't drink, and, you know, don't dance. Seriously? <laughs> like, like, no. You know, I mean, you guys know my stance on alcohol. The Bible is not against the consumption of alcohol. Just do it wisely. If you're underage, don't drink because you're breaking the law. Don't get drunk. Not because God doesn't want you to have a good time, because he doesn't want you to wake up in the back of an El Camino. But if you, because with that come consequences, right? But we slap religion on it and teach kids, ah, you know, no, but if, you want, if you're a mature Christian and there's not a bunch of other people who are weak around you and you want to have a beer or a glass of wine with your wife, have it. So don't be a knucklehead about it. And if there's somebody around you that's going to have a problem with that, then don't have it. 
You know why? Because being a good witness for Christ is more joyful than having a beer in your freedom. But we have these little silly discussions about whether or not we can consume alcohol, and we lock it down and we suck all the joy out of Christianity. We're called to live together in a way, but living together in a way that that esteems the cause and the glory of Christ more than our own freedom and our own life is more joyful. It's more joyful. And God calls us to live that way, and then something beautiful happens. And this is what happens. 2 Corinthians, throw it up on the screen. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, chapter 2. Check this out. I love this verse. It talks about how we should smell. Oh, I love it. And I got a little boy who's prepubescent, and I, he, boy, I know about smells. Oh, my gosh, that little boy. I need to crank him up with some underarm deodorant. But this is what the Bible says about how we should smell. How we should smell as a people. Listen to this. It's so good. It's so good. Second Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. And through us, like how we live together, how we treat one another, how we deal with the weird, strange, awkward people among us, how we engage in conflict resolution, how we get over little spites between us, how we handle offense, like how we do that, how we speak to one another, how we forgive one another, how we do church life together is so important. It is, it through us, it is the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are being perished, perishing. To one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. So what it's saying is that as we live in this, this really rugged, difficult, hard way together where we're treating each other well, we're living out our life as a church for Jesus' glory and our joy, it will smell a certain way to the world and it will be attractive to those people who are becoming Christians and it will be offensive to people who hate Christianity. And then he says, who, who, is, like, who can do this? It's a rhetorical question, meaning nobody. Who is sufficient for these things? Who? Like, we can't, but through God's grace we can. For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. The first question is, who is Jesus in your life and in this church? He's not just a trick pony that we roll out every now and again so that we can get a good crowd and can feed my ego. He's the king and the savior and he will cause some people to, his truth, his message will bring offense to some people. He's not a helper. He's a rescuer from death. Two, how are we supposed to live together in a gracious, patient, Jesus-loving sort of way so that it becomes a smell and aroma? And third, and how can we best fulfill his great commission, his command? He tells us something right before he ascends. Right, like right before he ascends into heaven, Jesus dies. He lives a perfect life. He's crucified. He's buried in the ground for three days. He rises again from the dead. For about a month, he appears to over 500 people. And I love this. If you're ever struggling with spiritual doubt, don't beat yourself up. Because Jesus is, in Matthew 28, verse 17, one verse above verse 18, Jesus is like getting ready to ascend. He's appeared. He's reappeared for a month to 500 people. He's telling people, hey, put your hand right here in my nail hole. When Jesus has come back from the dead, he's like levitating up. And in verse 17, it says, and some people still doubted him. <laughs> I love that verse. It's like one of my favorite verses in the Bible. Like people still doubted Jesus. He's come back from the dead. He's levitating up and he's about to give out the great commission. People are like, 
I don't know, man. I had this cousin Jimmy once, and he could do this, you know, levitation trick. You know, I mean, I don't know. I mean, so like if you have a tough time with the Christian message and you're doubting, you know, hang in there, okay? Hang in there. People that see Jesus going up into heaven are like, ah. But this is what he says as he's ascending into heaven. Put it up there on the screen. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And, lo, I will be with you always. So the third question we have to ask is not how can we be a good little Baptist church or a good little Pentecostal church or a good little Presbyterian church or a good little whatever. We don't care about that stuff, right? Like if you're looking for a place where we did it, we sing your songs and we preach the way, this is not it. Our heartbeat is making Jesus known, living together in a way that the Bible calls us to, and then thinking about how we can do church that most makes it most effective that we can actually invite people into this thing so that they would meet Jesus too. That's our heartbeat. That's our heartbeat. That's all we care about. And so every decision we make has to be run through that grid. And you as an individual, if you are a Christian, your life should be about these three questions as well. Who is Jesus? How is he calling you to live? And what does he want your life to be about so that others can see him and come to know him? And that you individually, joined with a group of people, can fulfill this great commission that Jesus gives us. These group of people in Nehemiah are gathered together. It ends up being about 42,000 of them, another 8,000 servants, 50,000 people. The title of our sermon series, and I end with this, we've creatively entitled our series title for this book of Nehemiah, we're calling it Nehemiah, A People on Mission. We're here for a reason, guys. Pretty soon, someday, we're going to say, hey, we've got to buy a building, and we need you to give money. Someday we're going to say, hey, we need to do this. Why? So that we can be happy and comfortable, or so that Jesus can be made great and famous in a culturally religious but very lost area. If you're just looking for a church where you can throw your quarter and have the monkey dance, this isn't it. If you got thin skin and you don't handle offense well and you run at every conflict or you just kind of want to hang on the edges, this probably isn't the place for you. But if you want to serve Jesus with your heart and you want to rub up against a bunch of other weirdos who are trying to do the same thing, and then you kind of want to make your life about something bigger than just cultural Christianity in the South and college football, And I'm not beating you up. I mean, believe me. I I struggle with those same things. Then join us. Join us. Lean forward. And let's be gracious to one another and thankful for other churches in our area who are doing the same thing. And let's, like the Jews in the Old Testament in Nehemiah chapter 7, be a people on mission together for Jesus. Lord, thank you for this patient crowd. Lord, I, I, I could talk for days and hours about these things because I'm so passionate about them. I admit, Jesus, that my life is a case study in hypocrisy. These things are so easy for me to preach on. 
but they're harder for me to live out. I spend a good bit of my time being self-consumed, self-absorbed, and insecure. I confess, Jesus, that basically my world still rotates around my belly button, and I basically want to be comfortable, safe, and well-liked. Basically, subconsciously, a lot of the time, my desires are my king, not you. And most of the time, the air that I breathe is not graciousness and love towards my brothers who sometimes rub me the wrong way, but I am, I am, I, the air I breathe is cynicism and anger and distrust and frustration. But because you are king and because you haven't just helped me, but you've saved me, you've called me to join you on your beautiful mission of reconciliation, and you've called me to to make myself vulnerable, like you made yourself vulnerable on the cross. You've called me to join into relationship with people that are like me, that are, that are messed up. And then you've called me to make my life about something far bigger than retirement, 401Ks, and recreation. But you've, you've called me, and I think everybody in this room, to make our lives outrageously, extravagantly generous for the sake of your glory and our joy. So God, as we spend a few moments here responding in song and communion and prayer, God, I pray that everybody in this room would be able to answer the question, who is Jesus? He's not just a helper. He's not, he's not the Western religious ethic. He's the king. He's the savior. He's the Lord of all creation. And he comes to offer everyone in this room life. But he does that not just by giving us good advice through the scriptures. He comes by dying on a cross for us. And making this one stipulation that only those that would repent and believe and trust in Jesus would receive that, that life. So, Lord, if there's somebody in this room who's never done that, I don't care how much church they've got in them. Would you, as First Peter says, cause them to be born again by the living and abiding word of God? Would you bring them back to life? And if that's you right now, friend, would, here's what you need to do. You don't need to come forward, fill out a card, pray some magic prayer. I don't have any spiritual tinkerbell dust. Here's what you got to do. You have to look to Jesus, and you have to realize that without him... What awaits you is God's justice. And that justice will be swift and quick. But if you would repent, turn from self-reliance and self-absorption and put your faith in Jesus alone as the soul, sacrifice, atonement, wrath-absorbing sacrifice of God, what you receive in response to that is the forgiveness, redemption, and the beginning of a life full of joy. Not religious lockdown. Joy. So that your life can be about something bigger than 70 years and recreation. But life forevermore and the glorious invitation to come and live for Jesus.
You need to do that today if you haven't. If you need to work that out with somebody, I'll be around. There'll be some folks down here. Do that. Don't be bashful. For the rest of us, come on, let's lean forward into the response of what Jesus wants our life and our church to be all about. Lord, I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.